The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. All right, uh, good morning. It is uh, good to be with you all. Uh, my name is uh, Andy. I am a, a covenant partner and an elder at Gospel City Church. I think I got it. <laughs> all right. And uh, this morning, we will be starting with a uh, new uh, four-week series looking at the theme of rest and Sabbath across the entirety of the Bible. So this is going to be a little different than um, our normal sermon series. If you have uh, been with us at GCC for some time, you know that um, when we come uh, on Sunday mornings, our primary means of teaching through the Bible is a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter look as we go through one book at a time. So this year we've gone through Matthew, we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, um, but we are now uh, choosing to embark on a four-week journey across the entirety of the Bible, like at the 40,000-foot view, to gain a better understanding and appreciation for God's beauty and design of Sabbath and rest for His people. So we're going to have four stops along the way. Uh, This morning, we will be in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Next week, you'll have the pleasure to hear from my father-in-law, Becca's father, who is an Old Testament scholar, and he'll be teaching us on the Sabbath and the law. Then we will look at the Sabbath and the Psalms, and then we'll finish by looking at Sabbath today and looking forward to Revelation and the New Jerusalem. And so that is where we are going over the next four weeks. Um, I'm going to do my best to uh, lay the foundation this morning, but I just want to say at the outset there have been many books, many lectures, many classes on this topic, and we are going to do our best to lay a foundation for you all in these next four weeks, but I hope this is something that you all see, like I said, the beauty of God's design and Sabbath rest for us, and that spurs your own practice, it spurs your own um, reading and your own exploration of this idea. This morning, uh, as Jason read, we'll be in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Um, And to help structure our time through this creation narrative, uh, we're going to be asking and answering three questions. The first question is, what does this passage teach about work? The second question is, what does this passage teach about rest? And the third and maybe the most important question is, why should we care? So that is where we're going this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into the God's word. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for uh, just rain and the coolness of a new day. Uh, God, I pray for our time this morning as we look into your word. Spirit, I pray that you would guide me, that my words would be clear, and that they would be honoring and glorifying to you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So at the beginning of this series, like I said, this is a bit unusual for us, you may be asking yourself, why rest? Of all the things we could talk about in the Bible, why put a pause in our normal routine, so to speak, and talk about rest? Well, to start with, as Becca came up this morning and shared a little bit of our mission, one of our values is to help the peoples of Kuala Lumpur to find rest in Jesus. And so as people that are trying to help others find rest in Jesus, we should know what that looks like for ourselves. And then many of you, I think, especially those of you that are in the corporate spaces, can attest to the fact that we don't live in the most restful city, do we? 
KL is regularly listed as one of the cities in the world with the worst work-life balance. In 2022, our city ranked as the third most overworked in the city and the, the third most overworked city in the world. So we were just behind Dubai and Hong Kong, but we beat Singapore for being more overworked. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but we beat them. Outside the city, just thinking about the global culture, we live in an age where there's nonstop entertainment, media, you're able to work nonstop, are always connected to something. We're able to keep out the silence, we're able to do whatever we want from the comfort of our phones, our homes. We live in a fast-paced, globalized world which relies on speed. We live in a city where KPIs and results are worth trading hours of sleep and sanity to make our bosses happy. The Christian culture today, and I know especially in the West, has labeled a variety of things as perhaps the biggest enemy or challenge of the spiritual life. You have competing ideologies, wokeness, you have money, all of these things that the church has labeled as a threat to our spiritual life. But I want to hold out to you what the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard said. He said that the greatest enemy of the spiritual life in our day is hurry. He said that we must take it upon ourselves to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in our lives. I believe that's right. The enemy, and when we are busy and distracted, the enemy doesn't have to do work. We're doing the work for him. And so as we take the time and study what the Bible has to say about rest, I pray that you would press in to where the Holy Spirit is drawing you to find rest. As we work through this series, we'll come to see that rest is a gift which we receive through Christ, and it's also something that we have to cultivate and work to find in our own lives. So as we seek to eliminate hurry and create space with our God. So kind of with that overview and purpose, I hope you all see the importance of what we're doing here. We'll now look at the first question. What does this passage think, or what does this passage teach about work? And in studying and working towards an understanding of Sabbath rest, I believe it's easy for us to neglect or shirk the value and importance of work. Work and rest are not mutually exclusive. They go hand to hand. Both are practices that were done and demonstrated by God here in this chapter. They're practices which fuel and feed off one another. As we come to the text in Genesis 1-1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The very first thing we learn in this passage about work is that God works. It's simple, but it is there. When we ask the question, what does this passage teach about work? The first thing which we must understand is that God works. Work is done by God. For the foundations of the universe to be set and made in order, work was done. And the work was done by God. The work which God did was beautiful. It was right. He was ordering chaos. He was bringing beauty from nothingness. There's something really important going on here in the fact that God is at work, and it helps us to inform our understanding of work and the character of God. The creation narrative that we read here in Genesis 1-2 to was not the only narrative about creation in the ancient Near East. Each culture, each belief system had their own ideas 
about how the earth came into being and who created it. These creation narratives were a common cultural statement, a a staple in the ancient Near East. And in one of these narratives from Babylon, the story of how the world created was that the gods were really tired. The gods had been toiling and they were tired, and so they created humans basically to do all the work for them so that they could sit back and do what they didn't what, and do the things that they wanted to. They created humans and outsourced all of the nasty jobs of creation to them. John Mark Comer in Garden City wrote, most of the other creation myths from around this time have essentially the same basic ideas. The gods are tired and worn out. Work is thought of as a burden. It's beneath the gods. And so humanity is created as cheap slave labor. That way the gods can sit back and be at ease. He continues, Genesis, though, is shocking. This God, the one true creator God, is nothing like these other gods. He doesn't hate work. In fact, he seems to really enjoy it. And instead of creating humanity to offload all his work because it's beneath him, the story opens with God himself working to create a world for humanity and a place for us to experience and enjoy his presence. So God could have chosen a variety of means to bring the world into existence, but the way which God chose was by him actively working, him actively creating, bringing the building blocks of life together. And in the cultural background of the ancient Near East, this spoke volumes. For the other cultures, work was a burden cast to the people by their tired gods. But what we see in the Bible is that God works, and from that, we see another answer to our question, and that's work is good. This passage teaches us that work is good. By virtue of the fact that God worked, we should understand this as a practice to be good. The author takes the time as the narrative goes about to even give a value statement on the work that God was doing. It was good, it was good, it was good, all the way up to the sixth day when it was very good. Now, the word good has, I think, a shallow understanding in our world and vocabulary today. The work which God did in creating the world was bringing order and beauty from chaos. It was not good the same way when someone asks you how you're doing, you're like, I'm good. And it's just like this flippant response. There was a a wholeness and a order and a rightness to the work that was done here. It was good. Work is good. It's a practice of purpose. Whether one is working in a multinational corporation, a nonprofit, or at home, the work is good. It's a way to reflect and image the God who created us. I do have to say, though, at this point that we're going to get to some of this later, but work today is subject to sin as the rest of creation, which can make it challenging. So I know there might be some of you out there that are right now like, eh, my work's not great. And I do want to understand that and recognize that. We live in a reality of, of the world dominated by sin, and we have bad bosses. We have long work hours. We have bosses that ask us to do things that compete and conflict with our ethics and our morals. And these make work challenging and it impacts our work. Though work is subject to the consequences of sin in the fallen world, God demonstrated work here in Genesis 1, and he created humans for a special purpose. 
That leads us to our third answer to the question, what does this passage teach us about work? That's God created man and woman to work. Let me read for us from Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. From the outset of creation, God made man and woman, he made humans, to be workers. Plan A was for humans to rule the earth as image bearers of God. And again, this is different from the other stories and the other cosmologies of the ancient Near East, where other cultures believed humans were simply uh, slaves to make the lives of the gods easier. God is commissioning Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity as image bearers, as co-laborers to extend God's work to the world. And the work of God, as we see here in Genesis 1, is bringing order and beauty from chaos and brokenness. God created man and woman to work. And in work, we're able to bring this order and beauty into the chaos and the darkness and the brokenness of our world, which points people to the creation which happened in the past and points them to the restoration and the renewal of the creation which will take place in the future. So when you design algorithms and strategies to protect financial institutions, you are bringing beauty and order into the world. When you teach children with extra needs that the world may look down upon, you're bringing order and beauty into the world. When you write legal briefs, when you think of ways to help uphold the laws of the land, you are bringing order and beauty into the world. When you make roti at the mamak, it tastes good. And that's a tiny slice of bringing order and beauty and goodness into the world. God created us to work. When you do the work that God has given, whether it's making coffee or overseeing a multinational corporation, you have the opportunity to image God by bringing order and beauty into the world. The first question we asked was, what does this passage teach about work? And we saw three things. God works, work is good, and God created man and woman to work. So with that first question answered, we'll transition now to our second question and ask, what does this passage teach us about rest? Let me read for us Genesis 2, 1 through to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So what does this passage teach us about rest? The first thing which we must take note of is that God rested. And this may cause some confusion or some weird uh, feelings in your hearts when you hear God rested. Jason and I just had a conversation about that this morning, about um, the, the language of God resting. 
God is almighty and all-powerful, why would he need to rest, right? Well, God was not tired. He was not in need of rest. And again, this is a direct juxtaposition, a direct challenge to the ancient Near Eastern beliefs at this time. Rather, God rested for two purposes, to delight in the work that he had done and to give an example, to set an example for the humans that were made in his image of what it looked like to rest. God had just created the universe out of nothing. In Genesis 2, there's chaos, there's nothingless, there's a formless void. My mind doesn't even know how to, how to think about that. It's just vast nothingness. And then after six days of God at work, there is animals, there's trees that are producing fruit, there's two people, and there's all of these things. An ordered and beautiful world had been created. Now, if you've created anything in your life, whether it's Ikea furniture or an art project in school, there's that sense of accomplishments when you sit back and you're like, wow, I created that. You get to delight in the work that you had done. And so God is demonstrating that here. Comer writes, rest here does not mean that God was tired or worn down. It's an act of delight. God is enjoying the fruit of his labor. So God is stopping. He's stopping the work. He's sitting back and he's delighting, enjoying the work that he had done. But it's also more than that. It's establishing the practice of keeping the Sabbath as an example for the humans that were created in his image. David Jones has an enlightening contribution on this idea says, the Sabbath is the first and one of the only impersonal objects or events that God blesses in Scripture. Okay, so this is like the first or the only, that should kind of perk our ears up and say, all right, this is probably important. Since God does not actually rest, the grounding of the fourth commandment and the events of Genesis 2, 1 to 3, leads to the conclusion that God's rest during the creation week was likely an example for all of mankind. In resting and blessing the seventh day, God was demonstrating a chronological pattern by which the world could continue to be regulated. God rested not because he was tired or exhausted. It's important. It sets God against the other gods of the culture. The other gods of the culture and their ancient cosmologies were tired, they were worn down, and they needed to create people to take the workload off them. God was all-powerful, and he rested as a way to delight in the work that he had done, and he rested as a way to set an example for humans, for us to rest. So intrinsically linked to the idea of God resting is our second answer, and that is that rest is good. If God is good and he's doing the activity, then this activity of rest is good. More than that, intrinsic rationale, though, God blesses and declares the day of rest to be holy, to be set apart. In our city, where busyness, late nights, hours worked over 40 a week are this badge of honor, God flips the script. says, rest is the thing that is good. 
Rest is the thing that is blessed. Rest is the thing that is holy that we should be striving for. In this declaration of setting the seventh day apart as holy and blessed, God was expecting that humans created in his image would follow his practice and rest as well. As we go through the series, we'll go into this a little more, but the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments calls the Israelites to remember the Sabbath. The appeal of the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath is a direct appeal to the fact that this was established in creation. It was established in the foundations of the way that the world was to be made. And that brings us to another answer which we learn about rest. And that's that God created man and woman to rest. And now we all know this from our human experience I just came back from the U.S. and I'm feeling the need for rest. If I can pick on Massimo, I see his eyes are a little heavy coming back from Europe this morning as well. So we all just instinctively know as humans, we need rest. Our bodies have limitations. God created us in that way. And so it's good, it's right. And because God created us in that way, he also ordered the world in a way that would inherently provide rest for us. If we look back at Genesis 1 and the declarations of all of the six days, there's something unique that you'll notice about them. The author writes that day one, there was evening and then morning. Day two, evening, then morning, so on and so forth. Every time it is evening and then morning, that God created our days to begin with. Our day does not begin according to the creation narrative when the sun comes up, but it begins when you lay your head on the pillow to rest for the evening. How amazing is that? God created the days to begin with evening. Each day begins with rest. And then from that place of rest, we go out to our vocations. We go out to our city And we go out and do work to bring order and beauty to the world. It's so different than the way we view our days now. We wake up maybe sometime in between 5 a.m. and 9 a.m. And you just go. You give, you give, you give until you like have to collapse on the floor. We drink, myself included, a lot of stimulating caffeine-inducing products to get ourselves there. And then at the end of the day, we just collapse. But this idea, the way that God ordered the world is with your day beginning with rest, with you sleeping in the evening, each day starting with the grace of sleep that our bodies so need. And the week is even different than we conceive it as well, right? The Biblical idea of the week is that the Sabbath is the first day. And so you start the week from that place of rest. Rest was first demonstrated in the newly created universe by God. God rested. He rested not out of a need to rest, but to delight and set an example for humans. Rest is good. And God created us to live in a world which provides the grace of rest each day. And that brings us to our third question this morning. Why in the world should we care, right? 
when there is bosses telling us to do X, Y, Z, when there's money on the line, when there's whatever fill in the blank for you, when there is new babies and grandbabies to hug on and kiss on, why do I need to worry about this thing called rest? And if that's what you've been thinking the whole time, fair enough. It's a valid question. We should want to know why this is important. As we go through these next three weeks after this and look at the concept of Sabbath and rest, we'll see the idea that Sabbath and rest plays a massive role in the Bible. Keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Throughout the law in the Old Testament, there are years of rest and years of return to the land that were instilled in the lives and the patterns of the Israelites. The Sabbath was inherently tied to the way that the Israelites were meant to live in the land. It set them apart and made them to look different. Rest and Sabbath was linked to Joshua and the conquest of the promised land as the people set out for the promised land and the land that would find rest. Rest was the offering which Jesus gave the weary and the burden-laden people in Matthew 11. And Sabbath rest ultimately points forward to eternal rest with God and the new heavens and the new earth. As humans, we were made to rest. And as we further our study on Sabbath rest in this series, we're going to continue to draw out various application points, which will help us as we seek to cultivate rest and eliminate hurry in our lives. If you are here this morning and you're like, I've heard this rest sermon before, and the pastor just said to go sit in the dark closet and like turn off all my books or turn off all my TVs and just stop. Uh, that's part of it, right? We see in the, in the scripture this morning, God stopped working, but we also see that he was delighting. In other passages of scripture, we see Sabbath has practices of worship, has practices of things that you enjoy. And as we go through this series, Uh, I hope to draw out some of these applications for you so you're able to rest in the way that God wired you to find rest emotionally, physically, spiritually. Today, I want us to reflect on one question. In Genesis 2, 1 through 3, God stopped from the work that he was doing at creation and he rested. So just in the quietness of uh, the space this morning, I want you to reflect on this question. When was the last time you stopped? When was the last time you were not working? And I don't mean work in like a literal sense of stuff you're getting paid for. When was the last time that you were not doing anything that was leisure or rest? So if you're doing the dishes and that's a chore that you hate, that's work. If you're cleaning a poopy diaper and that's a job that you don't like, it's work. It's not something that is restful and giving you leisure. So when was the last time that you stopped? You know, for some of us, especially the new parents in the room, new grandparents, those with new jobs or taxing jobs, it it may be a while and, and that's okay. I want you all to feel like you can ask for help, though, especially those of you that are new parents, those of you that need an extra hand right now. As we uh, dedicated 
the children a few weeks ago, the church gathered around you, not only to support your children, but to support you in this journey as well. So ask for help. You've got a team of free and uh, hopefully qualified babysitters um, around you that would love to spend times with their nephews and their nieces. When was the last time you stopped? And I want to ask one last question, a related question as we're closing. And that's, why aren't you stopping? If you said, oh man, it's been a while. I'm going, I'm going, and right when work is over, I crash on the bed and the alarm goes off and I just run to work the next day and Saturdays I'm you know, running around doing errands for the family. My parents can't do anything for themselves, so I got to make sure everything's right for them. And then, well, Sunday afternoon, I have to go cook dinner for grandma because if I don't go see her, then she's going to complain to my parents and they're going to complain to me. And then it's Monday morning all over again and the alarm goes off and I'm going to go all day, right? I'm just getting, getting tired thinking about that. <laughs> if that's you, I want you to just reflect on and ask why aren't you stopping? If you aren't stopping because you're trying to prove, trying to perform, trying to show worth to others, if you're not stopping because you're trying to show your value, if you're not stopping because you're afraid of asking for help, I want to remind you of the God that we serve. You know, we've been studying through Gentle and Lowly and just want to remind you of the picture of the God that we serve. Jesus identifies with the sufferers. He identifies with the sinners. He identifies with the weary and the burdened. And he welcomes them and calls them and draws them to himself. Jesus completed the work of salvation on the cross for you and me. He took the disorder, the chaos, the ugliness of sin that dwelt in my heart and your heart. He took it upon himself and he exchanged it for beauty and for righteousness. Rest in the assurance of salvation in Christ. And from that place of assurance and salvation, bring the things, bring the challenges that are impeding your rest, impeding your stopping to him and seek to stop and delight in your Savior. Well, from the creation narrative in Genesis 1-1, we saw that God worked. He created humans in his image to work and do work that is good, bringing order and beauty into the world. He stopped from his work at the end. He delighted. He set an example for us. This concept of rest is so robust and huge in the Bible. And I hope that this has whet your appetite a little to uh, hear more as we go on from some people that are more qualified and less jet-lagged than myself. The concept of rest, it entails our salvation and the way that we have assurance in Christ. It entails our physical, mental, and emotional rest that we take when we stop working. And it entails and encompasses the eternal rest, which we will have when we unite with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So that is where we're going for the next three weeks. Let me pray for us.
Father, I thank you for rest. I thank you that Christ saw the ugliness and the brokenness of our sinful hearts and he came and take those sins on, to take our shame and exchanged it with beauty and righteousness. I thank you that though we have, we have the privilege of working for jobs, we do not have to work for our salvation. I thank you that that has been done and that we can rest in the salvation which you provide to us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.